Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Kia ora everyone, welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe and I'm really glad you could join me as we get the chance to talk with Michelle Berryman, who's the Executive Director of the Fundraising Institute of New Zealand. And we have a really good conversation, really exploring her life, her background, what's led her to New Zealand, and what she's doing today. And in particular, Finns has just released a fascinating report looking at bequests and how people distribute funds in their wills. So that was a really interesting topic to find out more about. And if you want to see the report, go to the link in the show notes. If you enjoy this episode, then you might want to check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog, because this is actually episode 299. It's hard to believe I'm about to hit 300, um, and be watching out for the next episode where I get interviewed. Don't forget as well that there's a LinkedIn page, a Facebook page, and the website of theseeds.nz. You can sign up for the newsletter. And I really appreciate each of you who are unofficial ambassadors for the show. And here's a really easy challenge that will add value to your networks. If you enjoy this episode, then could you tell one other person about it or consider sharing it on social media? I don't really have a marketing budget for this, so it's a completely word-of-mouth endeavor. Now let's get straight into this interview with Michelle. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Michelle Berryman, who's the Executive Director of FINS, the Fundraising Institute of New Zealand. Thanks for joining me. Kia ora, Stephen, and thank you for having me on your uh, very popular podcast. Um, yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation because we've connected a couple times over the last year and maybe be- before about some of the work that you're doing with the Fundraising Institute of New Zealand. And I really want to explore that and in particular, some of your thoughts about the future of fundraising and like what what is it involved? What's changing and and what type of trends are we seeing? So we're going to park that for the moment, though, yep. because on the podcast, what I do is I try to understand people's journeys yep. and understand the why of what they do. So in your case, can we go back in a time machine? Yep. You're four or five years old. Where are you living and what is life like for you? Yeah, so um, I grew, obviously, I am uh, not a, a Kiwi. I think people might have worked that out already. Um, and no, I'm not from Ireland either. Um, I hail from Scotland. Um, I was born in the northeast of Scotland um, in a place called Aberdeen. And actually, my why is um, very much connected to where I am today. I um, yep through a life of childhood adversity, um, find myself um, in my early teens, um, yeah, struggling a little bit. And um, I took the decision to put myself into local authority care and spent a couple of time, um, some time in foster homes. And then I moved into a children's home. And then when I was 16, my time was up and it was time for me to leave and uh, yeah, find the world on my own. So everything that happened, I think, during that whole period um, really, yeah, I really, I really found my voice to be an advocate. I think when you think when you put the, your faith in people to look after you, um, and they, mm-hmm. yep, they let you down. I think you have to become an advocate. So I became an advocate really early at the age of fifteen. There's an organisation called Who Cares Scotland, and they give young people in the care system a voice. And I was fortunate enough to see the impact um, that having a voice can make. 
And shortly after that, when I left care, one of the things they do is prepare you for independent living, they call it, which was basically a checkbox. They tick off. Um, can you cook a meal? Can you do this and all that? It was really basic. But actually, the first night in my own flat when I was 16 was incredibly emotional. I remember just everyone had left the key, you know, the key workers who helped me move in and everything. And I was just there on my own and overwhelming sense of isolation, loneliness. What was I going to do? It was incredibly hard. And I realized they didn't prepare me for independent living at all. And so I went to my social worker and said, I want to do it the way it actually is. I need, I want you to help me set up a group for young people that will tell them exactly the truth of independent living. And so we set up, um, she was incredibly supportive and got some funding for a buddy program, which then brought children from foster homes and children's homes and set them up a buddy who had been through the process. But things like teach them how to wire a plug. I know that sounds odd in New Zealand, but um, we, we have to we have fuses in our plugs in the UK. I didn't even know how to wire a plug. So anyway, fast forward, that was a really successful program, but it gave me that really sense of how powerful change you can make and that program still exists in Scotland and um, so yeah that was the start of a, a career for me um, and then I went into be the youngest ever children's panel member for Scotland which is the justice system for young people uh, that determines their future um, and then from there just fell into a youth worker save the children in Scotland working in the east end of Glasgow which was incredibly hard but very rewarding looking at xenophobia sectarianism and um, during that time, I had four children and then we came out to New Zealand and um, yet been out here for 15 years now and I've remarried and got number five. And um, wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's that's a lot of information. Um, yeah. And it sounds like you you did a lot very young. <laughs> like I think when I was 15 or 16, I was definitely not going about setting up, you know, a mm. program for young people and thing. That that's that's great. Um just the the location that you described, was it was it in a big city or was it a smaller town you were yeah, from? Or well, just set was, the scene because yeah. yeah. I was in Aberdeen, which is a it's actually really successful for the oil when I was younger a lot of young people a lot of fathers worked offshore in the oil rigs so Aberdeen's the granite city they call it um but we lived um in a council um estate uh, my mum was a single parent most of my life um and yeah it was actually not too bad it was it was relatively new estate and it was quite nice um and I have you know although there was adversity there's always happy moments and I think one of the things actually when I was in the care system a lot of people would say to me afterwards because one of the things I did do before I came out here I ended up working with Strathclyde University and delivering a program that taught it was for youth workers and it was teaching um, the youth workers what the care experience is from a young person's perspective it was an incredible piece of work actually that the Children's Commissioner for Scotland did and um, did a article about and as part of that process the question was why when you had the similar levels of adversity from these other people that are in care have you been so successful and I think it I've kind of pondered that over the years where did the resilience come from and I was a gymnast in my younger years and I think um, I was determined yeah, from the age of five to 14 that's one thing that did really kind of ground me was my gymnastic family and I knew that if you did something over and over 10,000 times you could win and I won gold medals and I think that took me um, forward and knowing that actually you can achieve what you set out to do. Mm. 
That's interesting. It's quite a good lesson to learn early in life, isn't it? <laughs> that because um, yeah. it often often things these sort of podcast interviews I do, there are basic principles of being a human yeah. that if you can learn them early on in your life, it's going to see you through. You know, like yeah. the discipline of of hard work yes. leading to something or habits and routines. You know, yeah. like those are skills that we don't necessarily teach people in school. It just kind of expect people to absorb yes yeah where does resilience come from you know and in saying that i mean when you go back to my reason why i did not want i just wanted to change change it change i just want everyone to be the best versions of themselves and so for me if i could make one person's life better through sharing my experience um you know it wasn't all good i had periods where i lost friends to 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 drugs when i was 16 my next door neighbor uh, died of a drug overdose and i found him that was a pivotal moment for me when I realized I could have so been him. You know, it wasn't all roses and, and empowerment and Michelle is awesome. It was far from that. Um, I did a lot of things that weren't right. I, I was absolutely heading down the wrong path, but there was something there inside that brought me back when it, when I needed it. And um, I, at 15, had my first suicide attempt and spent um, time in a psychiatric hospital. So all of those things have made me who I am, but at the very core, it just brings me back to, I have to do something that just makes something better for other people. Mm. It's an amazing um, attitude that you've been able to cultivate though, that rather than becoming inwardly focused and just mm. being about yourself, that it became something that was outward. You know, even your experience uh, of the, that hard first night, you know, like yeah. I'm not prepared for this. I, uh, for many people, I think it would be like, a rejection of the system that didn't yep. prepare me, you know, like I bitterness, but yep. you, it sounds like you, you know, turned it around in a way like, well, it's not great. How can we make it better for other people? Yeah. And I think that's, um, that's part of my personality. Cause actually what was in my head that way, you know, it, it, you, you're right. I either give up and go, well, nobody cares. Um, or I go, actually, you know, I wanted to stick two fingers up to everyone and go, that's fine. You know, I was told, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail, but when you're told that, you know, when you have, when you have a feeling of self kind of loathing that you're never going to adventure, you know, you're never going to be successful. You're, you know, when you feel that you're going to be a waste of space for me, rather than kind of um, give into that, I was determined that actually all the naysayers, including, you know, family or whoever that had doubts, I was going to prove them wrong. And that's still today what, you know, I have a fear of failure rather than the joys of success. I, I don't, I don't want to be surrounded by the amazing things I do for me. It's that fear of failure that drives me. And I only realized that a few years ago. And I think when you realize that, uh, what it is that keeps you going, but also this part of my life fills my cup. You know, it's what I probably need this um, mahi that I'm doing as much as I hope, as much as I believe the people, you know, our, our communities need people to help. I think it gives me just as much as it gives others. Mm, that's really good. There's a danger, isn't there? I'm, I'm similar to you in some ways. Like, I'm just thinking if I ran an event or something, if there was 20 emails that came and said, that was great. Awesome job. Well done. See you next year. And one email said, you could have done this better. Which one do you think I'm going to remember late at night? <laughs> yeah, you are absolutely right. And that is that is so me. Yeah, yeah. People please are, hey, we just want to be just just want to be everything to everyone and for everyone to love what we do. And um, 
yeah you you have to accept that you can't be everything to everyone all of the time and sometimes just being good enough is enough mm, <laughs> because it does true. come at a personal cost you know um if you're chasing this um this notion that you are an incredible human being and you've always got to feel fulfilled then it comes at a personal cost mm. Yeah, I can see. Yeah, it's it's really interesting talking with you as well, because obviously I don't know everyone's history before I start recording. It's not I haven't done massive you yeah. know, internet research <laughs> or anything, but, yeah. but just hearing your story, like I just think of the dozens, the hundreds, the thousands of children who grow up in similar situations mm. where the system, you yeah. know, I'm using quote marks, the system yeah. is kind of um, taking over the role of foster care or yeah. um, moving people around and things and and how many of them just aren't able to receive messages about them being worthy yeah. and enough like yeah yeah so. it's 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 yeah it's a, a space I'm, I'm just very passionate about and about yeah, I'm fortunate enough, whatever it was inside of me that can, also as well, when you are left on your own, I think, you know, look at my grown up children now, I've got teenagers. Um, and I think actually, you know, I am enabling them not to look after themselves because I want to mother them so much and I'm, you know, I'm picking up after them. And then part of me is like, hang on a minute. But, and they say, don't dare compare, you know, compare me to when you were 16 because that was different. And they're, I'm like, yeah, you're right. But, uh, I think there's a fine line between um, encouraging independence and enabling um, a group of young people that just don't know how to be empowered and, and take control of their life. It's definitely a balance. It, it's hard to know exactly what's right. I mean, I'm similar to you. I've got a teenager at home and young children. Um, so it's it's that I guess sometimes people talk about helicopter parenting, mm. you know, like or or you know, cotton wool around them. Like, I, I don't want anything bad to happen to my child. And I think the more you realize that actually, if they don't encounter adversity when they're young, what are they just, they're just going to crumble when they get to be 22 and, yeah. and something bad happens because they were never allowed to experience it. Because as a parent, I sheltered them so much and yes. I, I didn't want them to be disappointed or, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, ten it's a tension. <laughs> Yes, it definitely is. You know, and I was, um, I left school because of my suicide attempt um, with pretty much zero qualifications. But in my head, I always wanted to to be to be something. Um, I wanted success in my own personal life, and you know, here I am. Um, when you talk about being a little child, I had. I remember if anyone ever asked me, I had two ambitions. I wanted to do a skydive and live in Australia, and I have no idea why. Um, <laughs> but New Zealand's pretty close, um, and I did it within my first six weeks. It's exactly what I did. I did a skydive at Taupo, and so I think also at the same time, if you don't have dreams, they don't come true. And the other one was to be, a, you know, a CEO and and to find myself here with no degree, no MBA, nothing compared to my peers when I first kind of got the role, uh, that really, um, that rhetoric, that voice in my head saying I wasn't, I actually, I was a fraud, that whole imposter syndrome thing, which I think everyone has, but for me, it felt overwhelming because I feel that when I came to New Zealand and I still think they do put a lot of emphasis on actual qualifications. And um, I think it's changing, um, but it still feels sometimes, you know, I did have a job who they, um, when they asked, what degree have you got in New Zealand? And I said, oh, I don't have one. And 
the you know look of horror why did you get this job if you don't have a degree and and i find that um i find that really challenging um mm. and i think it's i'm really proud to be where i am um and i hope that gives young people i guess another perspective too you know mm. yeah definitely i think we could do a whole podcast episode <laughs> about the education system <laughs> in new zealand and around yes. the world I was just up in Wellington at, um, it was the Angel Association of New Zealand. So that's entrepreneurs, capital raising, you know, people like that. And you wouldn't have expected it, but Michelle Dickinson came oh, and wow. she posed the, the day. And she was talking about curiosity in children and the fact that when they're young, you know, three or four years old, a child will ask a hundred questions in an hour. And then you take them to school and a year or two in, they'll ask five or six questions an hour. And then when they're 11 or 12, how many questions are they asking? A big zero, because the system has just taught them that you either know the answer or you don't. Yeah. And it's not about questioning and inquiring, it's about knowing. And therefore we're training people to memorize and learn rather than question and push boundaries. And it's just a yeah. fascinating discussion just throwing it in there as a little side topic yeah of, and, 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 yeah. and the core of what we do i do relationships are everything that's one of the um, education pieces i do um, and at the core of everything of life is relationships and relationships are born out of being authentic being passionate being you know you've got to have care you've got to have trust you've got to have all those things to make um to have a great relationship, whether it's personal business, you've always got to bring a bit of yourself to your work, I think. Um, mm. And being that, you know, my tagline was being bold, being brave, being authentic. And I am me, I tell it how it is. And, you know, mm. I write like I speak, <laughs> I don't wear, you know, I, and I think that that goes a long way when uh, you want to build relationships and connections. Yeah, that's really great. So it sounds like there was kind of a transition from leaving school and then getting your own flat and, you know, going on your own. But then you got involved in actually kind of coming back and feeding into young people as well. Um, how long did you end up doing that for? Was it quite a while? Or? Yeah, so uh, um, I didn't really stop actually continued and then I worked for Save the Children in Glasgow. So I was a youth worker for many years. And then when I came out here, I worked out at Epuni Juvenile Lockdown um, as a youth worker okay. there, um, which was very interesting. Um, I was excited to potentially work in that space here. Um, and I was a youth worker in um, some of the suburbs in Wellington. Um, and then I kind of, yeah, just kind of fell in. I'd always had fundraising kind of uh, as a kind of undercurrent of everything. Um, and when I realized I love on the ground work. I love the community development work. I love working at the group grassroots level, but I also got frustrated at the lack of change and also seeing how slow change was taking place. So I realized that to make the real change, you have to kind of move away from what I enjoy the most, which is working with the, the, the people that you're there to kind of um, raise the money for. So I kind of fell into fundraising, as most people do. Um, it's not something that you say at school. I want to be a fundraiser when I grow up. It's the quickest mm. way to empty a room. And <laughs> I think that's changing too. You know, when I came along to Finns, I um, was um, a very different leader to what a previous institute of a country was. And um, it took me a little while to, uh, I, I guess, get the trust of some longer term members. and. 
the way I did that was telling my story at our very first conference in the opening plenary. And that was a huge moment. Uh, I didn't even tell the board I was going to do it. And it was so funny because I had a couple of mentors, one over in the UK and one in Australia. And I'd given them my speech to read. One of them said, no, this is professional suicide. The other one went, this is incredible. It's going to change your life. And I initially I went, okay, I can't do it. And then actually I thought, if I don't do this, I'll never get a chance to do it again because it's not going to make sense doing it in my second or third year. And that's, um, I'm in the process of writing a book actually. And one of the things, first chapter is about instinct and how you learn to trust your own instinct. And you only learn to trust your own instinct through making wrong decisions previously. I challenge anyone who's never said, I really wish, uh, you know, I had listen to my gut instinct it's it's real you know we all have moments where why didn't i just do what i thought was right yeah. and so i decided to do the speech and um at the end it was a, a pin dropped and you know i looked down in the board and one board member was in tears and the person who said no came running right down and big hug and said i was wrong you know and it changed the tone of how we wanted to be you know we come to these conferences in our industries and we we get dressed up and we're going there to impress our peers and you know we're, we're going to show how amazing we are when actually it's the only space in your diary where you're with people who know exactly what you do for work and how hard it is and so for me it shouldn't be a place to go it should also be a place where you can go comfortable and be open and honest and share your struggles and have the comfort of those that know exactly what you're going through and so I think doing my speech opens that door and and set the tone for how I wanted to lead the organization going forwards. Oh, that's great. Well, was it recorded? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, no, that one wasn't actually. Um, Yeah, Yeah. but, um, you know, it it was great. And it was I think it was um, although it was it was it was brutally honest um, and so many stories come out during that conference so many people said oh thank you so much for sharing your story and then it gathered this momentum of you know we are not sitting in an ivory tower in wellington we are your institute we are for you you know we we are here to be um, your connectors and represent what you do and to advocate for you so our advocacy role has become really huge over the last couple of years and um and it's great. It's just great to have that kind of that that feeling that you resonate. You know, that's what everyone said. We just wanted a leader that we resonated with. And it makes yeah. such a difference. That's really good. I think I've noticed, um, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but it seems like there's a trend towards being a bit more open and vulnerable. Mm. And uh, if you look at the bestsellers in the, you know, business books of the year type of thing, you see titles like Brene Brown, you know, and what's she talking about? How can we be more open and vulnerable? And I think if you were to go back in time, you, you know, like 20, 30 years ago, that title would probably not be in the top books to be yes. being read by, you know, servant leadership or these, these different ways that people are expressing what we actually yeah. are, which is much more human. You know, we're, yeah. we're, we're all going through something at any given moment. Um, I think that's true but I think what's really important too as well is and I do acknowledge this you know I've been told several times throughout my career um, at reviews Michelle you tend to wear your heart on your sleeve now in some reviews that has been a good thing but in some review reviews uh, my manager has been indicating that that's not a good thing and that it's not professional and 
And I, I, I can appreciate that. And there is a space. I don't, I'm not an advocate for everyone coming to share their story. Um, that's not at all what we're asking or expecting for people. But if, if you have a story, I, I only think about it when, when I hear people's stories that resonate with me, um, I don't, it, it's just an amazing feeling, but it, it doesn't, you know, I don't, there's still a space for everyone. There's still a space for those people who want to, you know, play, have the more professional reserved kind of, I guess, behaviors. All I would suggest is that you bring a little bit of who you are to work because mm. that is going to, ch I don't think that that's, that's changed forever. And you can tell the people who, um, you know, have this kind of professional veneer. Um, so yeah, a little bit of yourself <laughs> is good. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's uh, the word I like I'm using more and more is the word authentic and yeah. authenticity, you know, that that we are who we are, but um, we can be open about it and and authentic in our stories. And I, I help lots of startup founders and sometimes they're showing like their pitch decks, you know, like invest in my company. And if it's purely about like, you know, how many units we're going to make and here's the profits we're going to make. Sure, that's fine. But if they can somehow inject, the reason I started this company is because, and then tell a little story, it's like, it just breaks it down. And I think it, you know, th that storytelling element is something which is really, really powerful. It sure is. It absolutely is. Is so storytelling will change the world. Ken Burnett, one of my heroes in the UK, wrote a book, his book last year was storytelling um, can change the world, and it can absolutely change the world. Uh, the truth told well is another one of Ken's phrases, and it's so true. You know, you just need to. Um, capture your audience. That's what fun, you know, fundraising. That's why I don't like the name, the, the term fundraising. We are the facilitators of change. Our job is to is to facilitate the the desire of someone to make an impact to the causes that they care about. And so the donor is the donor is the person who wants to make a change. We're facilitating them. And what needs to change as well is the rhetoric around look how amazing like so for a long time charities have been look at us we're amazing the annual reports are all shiny about please you know you should give us money because we're the best at this this and this but actually when you look at donor donor centric fundraising what it is you have your job is to remind the donor of the impact that they make you're not there to sell them your donor knows exactly what you do and exactly why they're giving you money so you're not trying to sell anything to them but what you're selling to them is the impact that they're making everyone wants to give and they give for many reasons there's studies everywhere you know giving makes you live longer apparently happier marriages it makes you healthier it makes you happy there is no true altruism even if you're not you're you're, you're getting something even if that's feeling good about yourself from giving mm -hmm. so reminding your donor of the impact that they're making is way more productive than giving them an annual report that tell that tells them how many you know like you just said, the lists off the data. That, yeah. That, that, that's not meaningful. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. That's another whole topic. We could talk for hours yeah. on that. Um, there's a book that is called Story Brand that I did a review of uh, a couple episodes ago. And basically the, the theory that this author, Donald Miller, he, he he's basically saying any, any organization, so it could be a corporate, could be not-for-profit, anything. We think it's about us and our story 
And it is actually about, in your case, you know, it's the donor's story. So it's about how can you make your customer the hero of their journey rather than come use my mm -hmm. services as we're the best accounting firm. We have blah, blah, blah. It's yep. about we as accountants can empower you to achieve your dreams. And it's just a subtle shift in focus, yep. but a quite important one from being inwardly focused to being like, I'm here to help you. You're the hero of your journey and I want to take you along you know, so Absolutely. similar, similar concept. It is. Um, and a good example is during the demise of checks, um, Finns kind of, when the demise of checks was announced initially by Kiwi Bank, our phone just went hot. And of course, uh, the demise of checks was huge to our sector. And the first snap survey that we did showed that over 50% of charities received over 50% of their donations via check. So that was huge. So that, the, the, you know, the rhetoric, the, the, the message from the banks was that it's only 5% of the population. This is a natural progression, but actually that 5%, our sector was disproportionately affected because it right. was huge. And so there was people panicking. And so the banks, they were great. We've had a, such an amazing journey together over the last 18 months. We've made some huge milestones through working together rather than going in there resistant and kind of trying to, um, I guess, fight against it. There's sometimes I think you have to accept when you can't fight against change and that the, in order to get the best outcomes, you have to kind of embrace the change and work together. And that can be really hard because I initially there was a quite a large cohort wanted me to go in there and, you know, fight the government and say this isn't happening. But when I had the conversations with the heads of the banks, I realized very quickly that no amount of lobbying we were going to do was going to change that decision. And the way and the best thing for Finns to do for our members and our donors in New Zealand is to work with what was going on. Mm. And so one of the things the banks didn't really appreciate until we got involved was the the psychology of donating. So when when you're writing a cheque, that sometimes is the only touch point a donor would have with a charity, whether it was at Christmas or Easter. Um, a lot of donations are religious based, which our gift and will survey uh, research shows. And um, the so sitting down and writing a check to your favorite charity putting it on an envelope writing on the envelope even walking to the post box and putting that um, donation in the post box is all a beautiful part and a connection to their charity now replacing that with an automatic payment or a direct debit you are never ever going to get that experience and i think that's something that banks didn't consider they didn't consider that this digital transition is going to make everyone's life so much easier and it will be great for everyone when actually that isn't true there was a, a big missing link in the psychology of giving there it's really interesting I, I think that often happens with societal change and it seems inevitable but then you don't think about the flow-on impacts of it um, even you know like I'm holding up my phone think you know 30 years ago we didn't have this in our hand to guide yeah. us through life. What's the societal implications of the access to this? You probably, they probably weren't thinking about that. And, and that's a great example there. Can I just ask you, um, cause we're starting to talk about the fundraising side of things. Yeah. And I know that you know what Fundraising Institute of New Zealand is. <laughs> Can you explain to the listeners, um, just step back from the detail of it, give us a little overview on the organization and what the mission is. Yeah, what you're focused on. Cause some people won't have come across it yet. Of course. Yeah. So the Fundraising Institute of New Zealand is going to be 40 next year. And it's be, it should, 
to, initially it was set up as a institute representing fundraisers, uh, the peak body for fundraisers, and it was a member-based organization. We still are a member-based organization. And our, our role was to provide education, net, networking and support to fundraisers um, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. The other side of the business that we have is that we're very fortunate in New Zealand that we self-regulate, uh, we get to self-regulate fundraising. And um, with that becomes the, what FINS holds is the code of conduct and um, ethical guidelines for being a fundraiser in New Zealand. And with that code of conduct and ethical behavior, our members are committed to that is how they will behave ethically. There's a lot of ethics around um, canvassing for donations, as you can imagine. We There's lots of, you know, it's a vulnerable space and those that we have to be held accountable to quite a high standards. Alongside that, there are charity services um, as well who, who play, their, play their role. And <laughs> up until recently, and that's one of the biggest things from COVID, I think up until recently, when I when I took over the organisation um, over three years ago, we had reached a, a crisis point um, and things needed to change. And it was um, a survival mode. We're still kind of in that survival phase. But one of the things that COVID accelerated was, so the organisations I think that did really well at the start of COVID, I love COVID because it was a great leveller for someone like myself that no MBA or any degree prepared you for a pandemic. For We were all playing this game at the same level together and so yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the organizations in our sector that kind of really survived and thrived were those that kind of focused on their core purpose didn't panic they didn't stop everything they didn't stop asking people for money they didn't stop people they didn't stop anything they just re-focused on their core purpose and where change was needed they accelerated change and it was brilliant for that and i realized at fins that if we didn't change we were we were not going to survive and so last year we reviewed our strategy and we've come up with what i believe is a beautiful strategic plan that i hope will take us through the next 40 years and so our vision is that everyone in aotearoa new zealand is empowered and inspired to give generously and confidently to causes that they care about and our mission is to inspire create and strengthen confidence in giving and generosity across aotearoa new zealand that leads to positive impact and we've got some four uh, new values, which I really love. We are boldly generous. We are committed collaborators. We authentically inspire and we hold the highest standards for everyone. Mm. And so great. I, like, I like all those words. Yeah. <laughs> there is authentic in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, um, I, I think it's quite reflective of uh, the, the work we've done the last few years, for sure. And, and it's, it's, a beautiful thing to go forward with and you know New Zealand were in 2019 we were the third most generous country to be the most generous country in the world is achievable um but the social and economic benefits of such would be huge not just for 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 the all of New Zealand um and what a wonderful thing to be known for to be the most generous country in the world and if Finns can play a role in that then that is exactly why we're here. We're here to maintain the standards. We're here to provide education, but our scope has broadened and we are looking at support, a lot of advocacy in the sector around the demise of checks work that we've been doing. We're looking at doing some work this year around bullying, discrimination and sexual harassment in the non-for-profit sector. And we're just about to launch the, our first ever um, deep dive gift in wills survey. Uh, research sorry it's not a survey two years in the making um a research 
Wow, that's awesome. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit about that if you're okay to share it with it. Um, yeah. Before we do that, though, so the members that you're that you talked about are these people just spread across the country? Are they mainly working within charities themselves, or would they be like consultant type people, or is there just a broad mix of people? Or we've got all of those. Um, so we've got stakeholders and um, that we that we work with other peak bodies in the sector um, and we have individual members They're they're actually probably on the decline more um, we have lots of organizations so your St John's your we have over we have almost 400 members but when you take the data out of that because a membership for example for Red Cross St John's the big charities they have lots and lots of staff so they benefits that we offer for all of the staff. So we, we have about 2000 um, members within our kind of um, membership tiers. We also have supplier members, which are yet your contractors, the people who do all bring amazing business to help charities um, fundraise effectively. And yeah, so a whole range of charities. And we also are part of the charity service, charity services um, user sector users group to feed back to the government um, we helped just at the end of last year I appeared before Parliament select committee and got a, a one of the changes to a gambling act um, for digital digital transactions to be able to be made for lotteries so lots of um, small but significant pieces of work yeah no I can see the role that you play it's just good to talk about it because yeah, I know yeah. quite a bit because I'm also on the charity services sector group yes so, of course um there's lots of connections where I see you and we're at meetings and things but it's good to it's I think it's just good to you know open the door for people who maybe haven't come across it as in the same way and I think it's really interesting what you say because I think there's an assumption with some charities that they're really wealthy you know like some some names that you think of and you think well they must have like hundreds of millions of dollars but the reality is that very often they need your donations they need that support to continue on don't they yeah i think one of the for me the one that i and i you know most organizations in new zealand were set up around about 40 years ago and they were born out of the need of volunteers in the community who saw gaps in their local community and put together volunteers for their favorite causes and and it was wonderful but the idea that i think some people have the idea that when charity the, the concept of charity is that 100 percent of all proceeds will go to the charity and so this public trust in charities is a plays a huge role in giving edge and generosity in new zealand and when you hear stories about you know how much it costs charities to um raise the money my question to that is, you know, <laughs> they're businesses, they're operating as a business, they have they have core costs, they have these amazing staff who aren't just fundraisers shaking buckets or doing sausage sizzles, we are, you know, dedicated to educating ourselves and they, we've, it's a profession in its own right. And um, I think, yeah, there's a lot of frustration when I hear that charities are, you know, not used spend too much money on being a, a, an organization which is um which is unfair yeah no definitely well it sounds like a big part of what you're doing is education and i'd love to find a little bit more about the research and things that you've been doing i assume as well in the show notes we can put a link to things so yes. we can put 
to your website and some people listening may be interested and curious, like maybe they're a part of a charity or something and they're realizing they could actually learn from your experiences. Yes. Um, Absolutely. So, but you did mention some research that you've been involved in and um, going to be publishing. Is that something that you can share a little bit about with us? Absolutely. So this was a piece of research um, that we've been working on for the last 18 months, two years. It's New Zealand's willpower, and it's the study to benchmark leaving gifts and wills to charity in New Zealand. And this was a project um, thankfully, uh, gratefully funded by Perpetual Guardian um, to do this. And it's we are about to launch this next month and i love some of the bits and that you'll hear me flicking through the paper here i love the data like you said it's really useful data is great but there's also this is a qualitative and a quantitative study and it was done through um, there was a wide public study with over 2000 participants but then there were the qualitative depth interviews so these were done um these were one and a half hour long in-depth interviews with donors who were either known to be, whether either known to be considering or, or had already committed a gift and will. And so understanding their motivations and barriers to to giving, um, leaving a donation in their will was one of the the key outcomes of this. Um, some of the top line things. Um, New Zealand uh, most recent data indicates that thirty eight percent of adults do not have a will. And approximately 1500 people annually die with one without one mm. and those who have made a will uh, it indicates that five percent have already made a provision for a gift in their will to charity what's interesting here is that figure rises to about 13 percent amongst those who have reported uh, donated 500 dollars or more to charity so what's really um, interesting for for charities is that your current donors are your most likely candidates for leaving you a gift and a will. And so looking after your donors, whether they give a one-off gift or whether they give regular gifts, they are potentially um, going to leave a legacy for you. And that's why, you know, donor love is so important. You can't just, you know, raise money and, and not love your donors or that's that's not going to work. And there's, there's so much potential here. Um, there's other stats here that um, the other interesting thing, and we always kind of knew this, but the half half of all the half of all the respondents who had said they were given a will had indicated they're giving to four or more charities, which wow. is yeah, people you know they support more than one charity, which is great. Um, and COVID had a big impact. Sixteen uh, percent of people in the research study had thought about changing their world during COVID. It was a strong reminder of, of I guess, um, death. Uh, something nobody wants to talk about, but it definitely um, brought that into the limelight and um, people were thinking about changing their will. So death became real for many people. And that's a time where people were talking about it. It's interesting point, because I think the reality is that each one of us um, you know, we're the stars of the movie, which is our life. And we don't think that it will ever end. Right. But, um, it, you know, cause I'm the voice of this podcast, but I'm also a lawyer. So I help people write their wills and get their enduring powers of attorney ready and things. And it is surprising how often people just put it off and it's like, Oh, I'll get to it one day. You know, I, I'm only 32. I'm only 42. I'm only 52, whatever the number is, it doesn't yes. really matter. The point is I'll get around to it. And I think what this research is compellingly illustrating is that it's, 
you know, it's something that you can get around to doing it now. And yeah. as you're doing it, why not put in a legacy for a charity that you care about or a, or, or a cause or a group or something? Um, because it is kind of a, I, I guess, a final way to support someone or a group that is doing good in the world. Yeah, it's your legacy. Um, I think what was interesting as part of this research too is the perception for everyone that was interviewed is that they're going to get poorer as they get older, which is really interesting because one of the things we wanted to find out was what was the average, um, the average gift, and the campaigns all over the world are 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 looking for more of a percentage gift rather than a fixed gift. But our study has shown what which we thought it would, that they have a figure in mind. And for, for people who want to leave a gift to their favorite charity, they want to leave them $5,000 or $10,000. And to them, they know that that's the amount that they feel they could make the impact that they wanted to with. But what the, yeah, what $10,000 is 20 years later is, is, you know, that that hasn't really sunk in with our, our, our kind of, I guess, our, our, the group that are leaving gifts in their wills. So that's a change that I think this research we would like to see when we, we're hoping to launch and include a charity program at FINS to raise that bar from 5%. 5% is actually quite low. It's lower than Australia, which is sitting at about 11%. Um, it's similar to Canada, but what studies have shown all over the world is that why we've done this kind of benchmarking baseline is that when you introduce uh, include a charity campaign which goes across all mediums for everyone that the the goal of that is to raise the percentage of people leaving a, a gift in their wills so that is where we hope to get to and get back to our mission of new zealand being the most generous um you know country in new zealand so it, it's all part of the same kind of um future mm. that we, we envisage and one of the other things i'd like to touch on before we wrap up is that and this is incredibly true, there was a real awareness expressed amongst our interviewees that future generations may not be as wealthy due to the costs of an aging population, rising costs of living and static wages. And therefore, lots of our older donors, um, particularly grandparents, are really concerned that their grandchildren, um, their future grandchildren, will be reliant on the gifts they leave in their will. Um, and I think that the biggest transfer of uh, intergenerational wealth is fast fast upon New Zealand, but the amount of family trusts involved, it's all quite complex. It's such an interesting research um, report that's coming out. And I think it will, even if you're not um, a fundraiser, I think it will, you'll find the interest, the, the research fascinating. Lots of data there on the net worth of um, households in New Zealand, which was very interesting. Well, what we'll do, um, we'll either put it in the links when we put the episode out, or um, we can add it in later if yep. the report comes out after this episode. Yep. Um, but it's interesting to me, just two quick things, and then I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. The first one is, I do notice that there's kind of a trend among the super, super wealthy, you know, like the Bill Gates and mm -hmm. the the um, Buffets and those people where they, they're signing things that say, I commit to give most of my wealth away during my lifetime. And uh, it's just an interesting trend, I guess, that I've been noticing. Um, of course, they're multi-billionaires, right? So <laughs> how much money do, does a person actually need? Um, but that's an interesting trend, I think. And then the second thing is you mentioned that for the people who leave money in their wills, 
are likely to have given to that charity beforehand. And so it's that how, and this is kind of a question to you, it's for a charity to maintain the relationship with their donors and to give them that experience now that they can no longer write the check, you know, what's, how can you craft an experience for your donors that continues that connection and continues their desire to do that so that they eventually do leave you money in in their will. And I guess it's a practical question. Do you have any tips for people who are listening? Because I think many people listening will be sitting on boards of charities or involved in not-for-profit. What are some principles or or things that you could share with us that might help someone when they next go to their next trust meeting (laughs) to think about how do we take care of our donors or yeah, any thoughts on that? I think what I touched on earlier, um, stop um, promoting how amazing you are um, and reminding your donors, all of them, about how incredible they are, making your donors feel loved, feel supported. And that can be, I mean, when you've got lots of, we're talking about just the communications, always communicate with a donor the way they communicate with you. So if they send you something in the mail, send it back in the mail. If they email you, email you, email them back. If they um, phone you, they like to be, you know, that's a strong indicator of how they like to be communicated with. But also at the same time, there are many, many generous people who actually do not want any contact. They know exactly the reasons why they give the money to the charity. In fact, I, heard, I, I know of one, one donor who got incredibly upset when um, they were sent a Christmas card. That is not, they don't want a Christmas card. Please do not send me a Christmas card again. And so you have to be very careful. But for those, for, for, the, for the, the, the messages that you do put out, um, make sure that they're absolutely focused on the donor, reminding them of the impact that they're making and reminding them of how how incredible they are we call it donor love we call it uh, in our in the members area of our website we've got a toolkit which in there has example thank you letters um, examples of direct mails that is, talks about donor love we've got lots of webinars on on how you should look after your donors so our, our website has lots of tools and resources that you can just copy and paste if you're a very small organization who has just given out a very straightforward thank you very much mrs brown you you know there's we can use much more um emotional language now and we can be much more authentic and so we've got templates in our in our toolkit that you can start with straight away that's wonderful. Well, I honestly didn't know about that resource. So that's really good for me to know because I hope a lot of people set up charities and I'll definitely be pointing them that way because yes. that's a skill set that you don't, you don't just, you're not yes. born with it, right? It's something that you can learn, but how many organizations would benefit from increased attention from their donor base? Because ultimately, who's your best ambassador? It's your existing people who believe in your cause. So if you can give them with, you know, arm them with the tools to go out and tell other people, it's got to be a win-win. Absolutely. Yeah. There's some amazing creative things in our, in our toolkit. You know, there's so many ideas that just, they're just very easy touch points that um, just change. You've just got to change your lens. As soon as you change your lens on it's about them, not me, so many ideas will come and Mm. yeah, Can I ask you a question? It strikes me, and I do a lot in this area of social enterprise, which is the idea that we can have business that achieves mission and purpose. Um, To what extent is that taking away from the work that you're doing in terms of we want to get people donating? And to what extent is it another tool in the 
pocket of the charity to potentially use. The example might be, you know, I have a charity which is focused on prisoners leaving um, prison and it's hard to get that first job. So I run education programs, but then I also set up a cafe and I employ those people and therefore I'm achieving my mission and my purpose and I'm generating some money on the way. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, what I hope you're doing is then um, breeding a generation of generous people who want to, in their own way, pay back what they have been given to their favorite causes, whether that's right back to yours um, and, a, and a foundation or in a way that is a charitable donation, or it just inspires. And that's my, my reason why, you know, there, I give, I do what I do because of the experiences I've had. And so I just see that as one part of the beautiful mix of um, everything of helping people, of being generous. We have to have so many different, you know, the, the, the idea that there's too many charities, we've got to shut them down. Absolutely not. There is something for everyone. Um, you know, what one, what one person's cancer journey is versus somebody else's is very different. And if there is a community or a group supporting the one that they prefer, then that's their choice and their right to be supported by that group. So it's about how we all kind of, um, just work, coexist together beautifully with the same idea of making life better for everyone and, and encouraging generosity where possible. That's awesome. Well, that's a nice note to finish on, I think. <laughs> um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really great to talk with you. I always love hearing a little bit about people's personal journeys. So thank you for sharing about your background and what's kind of led you to get involved in different things over the years. Um, but I'm also really curious to read this report when it comes out. So yep. I'll look forward to that and we can put it on social media when it's up. Um, and yeah, also the resources on your website. I'm definitely going to go have a look there. Um, but yeah, so they're I, in the members area, so you do need a login. But what okay. we have introduced now is a free or a micro membership. So we are no longer exclusive. Um, and that is a wonderful thing. So anyone can sign up through the process uh, and access our members area. So there's a little bit of a um, kind of uh, yeah, a little bit of admin to get into the members area, but it's um, fully accessible for everyone. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the website and send me anything else you want and we can add it to the show notes. But thank you so much for joining me. Wonderful, Stephen. And just before I go, I just want to say a huge um, thank you to you. Your Mahi, um, since you got here too, you um, are doing some incredible work and I, I see, see you pop up in all sorts of things. And so I just want to say thank you to you as well for, for everything that you do and bringing everyone together. It really is wonderful. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. So I'll remember that as the word of encouragement. Ignore all the other stuff. <laughs> well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Michelle. There was lots of things that stood out to me, and I really enjoyed hearing about her life and her background and what's led her to do what she does today. If you enjoyed this, then why not check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog? Because we're about to hit episode 300. Until next time. Mm -hmm.